The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Let's get into your headlines. Coinbase closes out a dramatic first day of trade below its debut price after rallying to over $400 a share with the crypto exchange's CEO telling CNBC the listing marks a new era for digital currencies. That's why we call it the crypto economy. It's, it truly is a new economy. It has um, now you know hundreds and thousands of companies being created in this space. Big beats for the big banks as U.S. earnings season gets into full swing. Goldman Sachs blows past expectations, posting record first quarter net profits and revenues. Sellers set to formally take over as CEO of Unicredit today, but his 7.5 million euro pay packet remains a bone of contention among some shareholders. ABB raises revenue guidance with the Swiss industrial giant reporting higher sales and orders in the first quarter. And Denmark ends the use of the AstraZeneca jab as the EU turns to Pfizer-BioNTech, bringing forward the delivery of 50 million COVID vaccine doses and announcing plans for a major contract extension. This contract will foresee the delivery of 1.8 billion additional doses of vaccine over the period of 2022 and 2023. All of that will be based in the European Union. So let's kick off the program this morning talking about this Coinbase listing. The uh, company has been valued at $86 billion after a choppy market debut, which at one point saw the cryptocurrency exchange market cap soar to $112 billion. The company opting for a direct listing where no shares were sold in advance. The IPO instantly made Coinbase more valuable than the New York Stock Exchange owner, the Intercontinental Exchange. Now, despite the volatile session, Coinbase shares floated well above the reference price of $250 set on Tuesday. And I think that gives you a very interesting summation of exactly how the IPO traded right from the get-go. Bitcoin briefly hitting a new record high of $63,600 ahead of Coinbase's listing. Coinbase CEO and co-founder Brian Armstrong told CNBC that his company has played a part in, quote, legitimizing cryptocurrencies. That's why we call it the crypto economy. It's, it truly is a new economy. It has um, now you know, hundreds and thousands of companies being created in this space. So I think you know, hopefully Coinbase going public and having its direct listing is going to be viewed as kind of a landmark moment for the crypto space. NASDAQ President Nelson Griggs told CNBC there is a lot of appetite for cryptocurrency-related listings. Coinbase is, is obviously the, the category creator. Uh, you know, they are the first one of its kind. Uh, they have uh, an amazing brand, so, so well-known. So if you are, you know, in, in the crypto space, if you are a crypto exchange, you clearly look at this moment and, and understand that it is, it is possible. There is certainly investor appetite 
So although I you know, wouldn't comment any specific conversations we're having, clearly this, this level of excitement around this transaction should lead to more interest. It's eye-watering, isn't it? I mean, we've seen uh, IPO after IPO, and this one jumps out to me of what you just said at the wall about its valuation being larger than ICE. And this is something that's fairly new. It's come to the market. I, I think the question marks that we both have is whether this is the horse before the cart, whether we were seeing these types of vehicles come to market very quickly for some sort of transparency when central banks have yet to decide how they feel about cryptocurrencies. So that's the biggest concern. If you look at the commentary from the central bank yesterday, uh, effectively calling it a, a vehicle for speculation, cryptocurrencies, and in many ways it's, it's more like gold than like the dollar where people are not using it for payments, which I kind of object to. I do think we are seeing some settlement in Bitcoin, and we've certainly seen announcements from the likes of Tesla, for instance, Stripe and others. And there's a whole economy that seems to be running on payments using cryptocurrencies now So and coin. So I kind of object to that. And I think perhaps the central bank is a little bit behind when it comes to this story. But that said, uh, one of the, the biggest issues is what comes next. And if there's a central bank crackdown, what does that do to any of these investments? Uh, well, I'm confused. I mean, like a lot of people watching this morning, we'll be looking at this and we'll be thinking, well, why is a uh, cryptocurrency exchange actually listing on a traditional archaic stock exchange platform and seeking dollars? Dollars, that quaint old fashioned currency in return for shares in a cryptocurrency exchange. So it's confusing to me. Um, I don't really understand it. Uh, people uh, who are watching who do understand it, please you know, get in touch. We'd be very happy to hear from you. But unlike gold, there is no intrinsic value in any of these currencies. Um, as far as Jay Powell is concerned, I think he's got it right. There's a lot of speculation going on here. Uh, beyond that, I don't really have a lot to add. You know, we saw yesterday the, the death of Bernie Madoff as well, and it was interesting to see some of the comparisons that were being made with what happened with the Ponzi scheme and the sort of market speculation, the stretch for risk and the amount of greed in markets at the moment. You know, SPACs was called out by one of the portfolio managers, the crypto market as well. These have been the areas, it's just stunning. If you're looking to raise money for any of these investments, the, the money just comes flooding in. There's almost no questions asked in a sense in uh, some of these in, initial raisings. I think the stock market actually yesterday was quite curious. You saw that volatility in the trade, but the questions I have is whether that was about valuation or whether it was about the direct listing process as some shareholders were seeking that natural exit. You've made a ton of money on it naturally or you want to cash in at some point. So I wonder what happens from here on that valuation and if it had have been a, a more traditional listing, what would have happened to that stock on day one? Because you have certainly seen very strong IPOs of late for any technology name. Look, I'm, I'm really in, interested in technological innovation. I, I think it's exciting whenever anything happens that points to a brighter, better future for everybody. But at this point, I still don't understand how any of these cryptocurrencies at this stage are going to make our lives better. I'm keen to be educated about this, but as far as I can see, this goes hand in hand with the financialization of the global economy and excess speculation is a very natural consequence of excess liquidity that's been created by a central banking system that I know many would argue is creating money or numbers out of thin air at this stage. We have governments that are also taking advantage 
of this coronavirus crisis to fiscally stimulate very aggressively. And they are ultimately conjuring money out of thin air as well, because there is no solid underpinning to the financing that they are doing at this stage. It's not like we're linked to a gold standard as we were in the old days. So it seems inevitable to me that you are going to get bouts of speculative fervour as a consequence of central banks massively expanding their balance sheets and pumping this money into the economy in the hope that some of it is going to help your average man and woman on the street. Is it helping them? I'm not so sure it is. When you look at average wages, they haven't really moved in 20 years. If you look at the fact that we've got thousands of workers in the United States on food stamps, workers on food stamps, there is something wrong with the way that the economy is working internationally. And I'm not sure that pumping money into a cryptocurrency exchange is actually the way to solve any of this and is helping ultimately the man or woman on the on on main street but hey you know it's got to be good for someone someone is going to walk away from this experience very wealthy but what does it mean for you what does it mean for me what does it mean for the average viewer i'm not sure i know i I don't think coinbase was set up what 12 years ago to to touch on all the items that you just raised there was set up as a punt on the rise in cryptocurrencies and we know there are anomalies out there at the moment Uh, there's stimulus checks that have been sent out in the mail they've gone into a lot of speculation for retail investors and i think if you step away from looking at this as a some sort of a financial company you look at it as a technology one Uh, what you had in terms of subscriber numbers 56 million users up from 43 million at the end of 2020 and the revenue numbers if you've got people just doing transactions for the sake of some form of entertainment or or speculation on the future this is still bringing in enormous revenue for this business at least at this point in time uh, 1.8 billion uh, was what we saw in terms of uh, the revenue in that first quarter Uh, surged ninefold from a year ago so I think if you purely look at the metrics like every other technology company you can see why there was interest in this particular name uh, again, back to the reservations, though, what happens if the, uh, price, the price of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and Ethereum fall, as well as any central bank action, then short term you may have an issue? Well, let's just throw out a scenario here, because um, you've mentioned a lot of people that are engaged in these currencies. And I agree with you. Um, there is a momentum around this story. And a lot of people are being sucked into it because they see other people getting rich on paper and they don't necessarily understand what it is they're buying. They don't understand why or, uh, you know, if there is any intrinsic value in the ownership of any of these cryptocurrencies. So they are being drawn into the story. But just for a moment, imagine that the governments uh, of the Western world, even um, uh, China, decides actually, you know what, we we think we've had enough here. There are risks building about what happens to the real economy if ultimately this speculative fervor carries on for a lot longer. And we know that there are historical precedents for this. Uh, You only have to go back to the the tulip mania, Mm. uh, perhaps, as as one example, or the speculation in the 1930s before the big bust. What happens if the governments decide they've had enough? We're going to ban these currencies. What value does your portfolio of cryptocurrencies have in that scenario? 
And people will say, oh, don't be ridiculous. Why would they do that? Look at the damage they would cause. Look at the actions that have been taken in our name around this coronavirus story. We have all been locked in our homes for months at the diktat of the government. Arguably, they've done it for us and in our name, and that will, uh, you know, uh, preserve our lives. But there are those out there who argue that actually the steps the government took were in excess of what was required given the virulence of this disease. So there'll always be arguments on the other side of the ledger. It is not impossible that governments could conspire together to ban these currencies because they want to issue a central bank currency that they can um, uh, truly validate and that they can have some control over. In that situation, what happens to the $100 billion valuation of Coinbase? Does it go to zero overnight? What happens to all those individuals who have stakes? Just quickly, it's very different to where we sit right now in this sort of cool uncertainty about how central banks really feel about crypto and that it's alternative to all the printing of money from central banks. If you actually have a, a verdict, a policy that is set, that's quite a different situation. And you're right, you, you may get an extreme fire sell and liquidity problems on exit if that happened. Um, I mean, just look at China, for example. They're already experimenting. Uh, very aggressively with the concept of a digital yuan. Even a digital yuan that is time limited. So if you don't spend that money that maybe comes from your social security in China, it may disappear from your bank account. All sorts of interesting ways in which you can control the activities of your citizenry. The um, people that are buying into many of these cryptocurrencies should perhaps just keep an eye on what's going on in China because it might give you an indication of how governments are thinking about the use of cryptocurrencies down the road. And I don't think they're talking about Bitcoin. But hey, as I say, I'm willing to be educated here. Uh, if you want to get in touch, please do through Twitter. We should tell you about a few, uh, a few more of the stories that we're following this morning. Uh, Kathy Wood's ARK Invest loaded up on nearly a quarter of a billion dollars of Coinbase stock on day one. You can read more about that and find out how she sees Bitcoin potentially hitting $400,000. That is on CNBC Pro. I apologize. I'm going to talk about a company that actually does things, makes things, builds stuff, has a uh, profit and a, a balance sheet. Um, ABB here. This is the Swiss-Swedish company that is in uh, engineering and robotics. Uh, they say they're raising their 2021 full-year revenue guidance. They say they now anticipate comparable revenue growth of around 5%. ABB sees recovery in process industry in the second half of this year. They uh, see first quarter revenues up 11% at $6.9 billion. The first quarter 2021 orders at $7.75 billion, up 6% here. So ultimately, we've got a trading update from ABB because they actually see things improving. Preliminary result, results driven by a stronger than anticipated market development, especially during the last weeks of March. And I think that fits in neatly with this broader idea of a reflation trade taking place, particularly around those that support the manufacturing industries.
U.S. banking heavyweights kicked off earnings season with some robust first quarter results. J.P. Morgan posting better than expected profits at $14.3 billion, thanks to strong fixed income trading and lower provisions. Meanwhile, Goldman Sachs reported record net income and revenue as a SPAC-fueled rise in deal-making led to solid investment banking performance. Uh, there you can see the relative performance of J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs through the session yesterday. Well, Wells Fargo shares rose after the lender posted $5 billion in first quarter profit, beating estimates due to reduced provisions and lower costs. Speaking to CNBC, the CFO, Michael Santamassimo, said he expects the U.S. recovery to gather pace later this year. The consumer is in really good shape. Um, and, you know, both from a liquidity perspective, they have more cash than uh, than they did, you know, even pre-pandemic in a lot of cases. And you're starting to see activity levels pick up as as the you know, vaccine rollout and the economy and states start to open back up. So while it's it's still really early, I think, in that in that recovery, I think you're starting to see some really good signs which should set up uh, more activity for uh, the second half of the year. Well, let's talk about these results. Octavio Morenzi joins us, the CEO of OPMAS. Octavio, nice to see you this morning. Thanks for coming to us. Was there anything surprising for you in the announcements that we had? I, I suppose uh, not, not really. I would say it was sort of a continuation of what we've seen over the course of the past year, and that is that trading and investment banking has done extremely well. And retail banking and sort of commercial banking has had some softness with, with loans not growing quickly, We're actually going back a bit and going down a bit. So I don't think there were any great surprises there. I suppose the surprise was that uh, Goldman Sachs really had sort of a blowout quarter and had its best quarter ever. That was a, a, a touch on the surprising side. Uh, and also that JP Morgan did as well as they did and had a return on equity of about 23% in, in, in the first quarter. So those are really impressive numbers. So I think um, really solid direction is sort of what we were expecting, but it was better than we expected. So it was encouraging. And that's my frustration with these numbers, that everything was so well signposted that in terms of market moving um, elements in these earnings, it's difficult to find them. If anything, I think the thing that has perhaps uh, underwhelmed is just the performance of the consumer banking lines. Indeed. So the consumer banking lines are nowhere near as impressive as sort of the wholesale lines and, and the corporate investment banking lines. And we've seen a lot of softness there in lending. So what's really happened with the US consumer is, is twofold. They've started to put a lot of money on the side. Uh, they The savings rate in the US has shot up to about 20%. Who knew that Americans could save that much? They'd never shown any new indication of that in the past. They put a lot of money into checking and saving accounts and other kinds of accounts, sort of squirreling away that money for a rainy day. Um, and they've taken on less debt. And the banks have also been less reluctant, uh, more reluctant about lending out to, to people uh, in the current environment. So as a result of that, we've seen debt levels come down. And uh, you might argue that's a good thing overall, that the US consumer is not so debt laden. But that's certainly the trend we've seen. Lower lending levels, lower credit card spending levels. So banks who are exposed to credit cards and things like that have had a bit of a tough time. Um, I hope the CFO of Wells Fargo is right that things start to recover. But I think that's more aspirational at this stage and looking forward as opposed to really having any firm numbers at this stage that suggest that. 
Tavia, big difference in how Wells Fargo has traded, though, versus a Goldman Sachs. I mean, you know, Wells Fargo's had a, a decent bounce this year, but uh, hasn't really traded uh, much beyond uh, some of the levels we saw pre-pandemic, quite uh, the opposite to Goldman Sachs that's shot past those levels and kept on going. So what's in the price of some of these banks now? Well, I, I guess Wells Fargo had, had a nice bounce yesterday, even though its results were, I think, somewhat lackluster. They weren't terribly impressive. They got a return on equity of just over 10%, which is not terribly impressive. But it's, uh, I, I suppose Wells Fargo is a bank that has sort of very low expectations in general. It's a bank that sort of stumbled badly over the course of the past few years, and now it sort of seems to get, be getting its footing back. So it got a nice bounce there. I, I think the more surprising thing is that someone like JP Morgan didn't see a bounce in its share price after turning in a really solid quarter. Um, I, I think at the end of the day yesterday, they were actually down a bit overall, which is, I, I, th I think, somewhat surprising because they did blow sort of the analyst est estimates out, out of the water, not as convincingly as Goldman Sachs did, but still. But even Goldman Sachs, I mean, they had a fantastic quarter and their share price was up four or five percent, which is also kind of tame considering how good their results were. So I think these banks might not be getting the credit that they deserve for their resilience through this downturn. So it's actually been quite impressive to see how well these banks have done. But I don't think they're getting much love from the markets at this stage. The markets are sort of looking at that and saying, we'd rather put money into Coinbase or crypto or things like that. You're not terribly impressive. But I think the banks have been overall had a very impressive run over the course of the past year. I think much better than most people had expected if you went back to Q1 of, of, two, of 2020 uh, when we started down the COVID path ask you about risk because a lot of managers have been closely eyeing the risk around provisions and salary and credit during this pandemic and been somewhat relieved, especially given the amount of provisions that have been set aside. That said, the risk we've seen for banks has come from a slightly different quarter than we expect in the prime broker business. And we saw the fallout for Credit Suisse on this side of the world. It was fascinating to hear the commentary from the Goldman Sachs boss, David Solomon, yesterday calling out the prompt action from Goldman Sachs and the risk management that they had in the business. What is it saying about the responses that we're seeing in US banks versus European ones? Well, I think that uh, you, you can see that a few different ways. I, I mean, we're talking about one single in incident, which is the Archegos uh, family office that basically cost Credit Suisse $4.7 billion. And what it looks like there is not that the US banks were much better in terms of unwinding their positions or just had much better traders and were able to get sort of the front of the queue and unload the, the shares that they got from that. They simply had smaller exposures. So they didn't take on these insane levels of risk that Credit Suisse did. Now, I'm not sure what was going on at Credit Suisse. It seems that they had a chief risk officer who was quite happy to sign off on these things. Um, and I'd be very, very concerned if I were Credit Suisse. But I think this is a, a problem specific to Credit Suisse. It is not an industry-wide uh, problem. I think the concerns with Credit Suisse has to be is that if they signed off on deals like this, they must have signed off on other deals like this. And so there's probably a whole bunch of skeletons in the closet at Credit Suisse where they've taken on insane levels of risk uh, for individual hedge funds and family offices. And I, if I were the CEO of Credit Suisse, I would be having sleepless nights now thinking, like, what else is out there? What else did these people approve? And I'd be going through the entire portfolio of the prime brokerage arm and other arms as well to see what did my risk management team do to me here and how can we unwind this? And that's going to be the scary thing, I think, for Credit Suisse for the next year or so. Yeah, and it kind of ties into a conversation we were having at the top of the show about Coinbase or Octavio. Um, this easy money is encouraging all sorts of risk-taking at this point. Um, talking about sleepless nights, um, Goldman Sachs has set aside $6 billion 
dollars for compensation and benefits. That's a spike of 87%. I mean, the revenue was up 68%, but now you've got comps and benefits running ahead of the revenue line here. Are these banks building in higher cost structures for um, more difficult times, ultimately, when perhaps the trading revenue will not be as strong as it is now, but these legacy costs will remain a structural impediment to higher share price performance. What's your read on that? Well, I th- I think in, I wouldn't necessarily see these costs, these, these compensation rate costs as being structural. Um, really what's happened there is more than anything on the investment banking side. Goldman Sachs had a fantastic quarter and investment bankers get a cut of the action. And so I, I don't know if that's really sort of built in structural. I think that's more sort of depending on the volume of business that goes up and down. So when the investment bankers have a bad year, a bad quarter, their bonuses suffer. And when they have a good quarter like they had now, a blowout quarter, they do very well. So I think that almost takes care of itself. I don't I don't think they're building into their into their balance sheet or into the income statement, some sort of structural costs that are going to be there forever. They actually are quite variable. And I think Goldman Sachs and other banks like that have been quite good about doing that, making that cost base a variable cost base that goes up and down with their revenues as that varies. So I I think I, I wouldn't be too concerned about that. I think that that looks actually in order. Octavio, thank you very much for joining us with some analysis on the back of those bank earnings. Octavio Merenzi with us, the CEO of Opimas. Coming up on the show, Andre Orsel prepares to take over as Unicredit's new CEO, but not without controversy. We're live from Milan next. And for more from the cryptocurrency's mainstream moment as Coinbase debuts on Wall Street, you can check out the Sportbox podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Unicredit shareholders have approved the appointment of Andrea Orsel as CEO, according to the Italian newspaper La Repubblica. Former Italian finance minister Pierre Carlo Padoan is also expected to be confirmed chairman. But Orsel's appointment comes with some tension, with a small number of shareholders unhappy about the size of his salary. Claudia joins us with more on the story. Um, How important is this group of shareholders, Claudia? I guess uh, they can always vote with their feet and sell their shares if they're not happy now that the board seems to have confirmed the position.
Yes, they certainly have that option. I mean, it is a big day here at Unicredit, and it is a big change for the bank. Uh, this appointment that is, with uh, all likelihood, going to happen in just a few hours of Andrea Orsel is certainly a big change. Now, uh, the big issue is the pay package, as you were mentioning. The pay package comprehensively is of 7.5 million euros. That's 2.5 million in base pay and 5 million in stocks. And the issue that these uh, governance advisors, it's ISS and Glass-Lewis, have had with this uh, pay package is the fact that it is not tied to performance. So he is going to ring in 7.5 million euros this year in his first year at Unicredit. Now, of course, if there's any correlation with pay and the job that needs to be done, well, certainly there is a big job to be done at Unicredit. So, uh, you know, uh, Orsel is seen as the best candidate to uh, take that job because it is a difficult job. He is an Italian, but yet is very well reputed at an international level. He's had, you know, a 30-year experience in banking and, uh, you know, all over Europe. He has worked for Merrill Lynch. He's worked for UBS. He worked on deals that had to do a lot with M&A, which is something that is most likely going to happen for Unicredit. So uh, while there is concern about this pay package, there is a need for that type of candidate. Now, uh, the challenges that have come in, well, we'll see, you know, what ends up happening there. But certainly uh, something needed to be said about that package just to, because of the fact that it is probably the third or the fourth, fourth highest paid manager in the banking industry in Europe. And certainly, again, going back to the fact that Unicredit has lost 50% of its value in the last five years, uh, down 85% in 10 years. It's a bank that's been suffering. It was one of the top two banks uh, about 10 years ago uh, behind Intesa and has lost market share and its position. So uh, there is no doubt that there was a concern about this pay package. But again, we will hear more uh, once this uh, has been made official, along with the uh, appointment also of Piercarlo uh, Paduan as the chairman of the board. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.